Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The plans for a smartphone app which will help improve literacy across the world. There's a significant fraction of these people that have smartphones, and the idea is to try to just make sure that everybody learns how to read. And why net zero carbon emissions targets might be too simplistic. Many of these kind of net zero targets, which are kind of hugely popular now, focus on the kind of wrong type of emissions. They focus on the production rather than the consumption. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. But first, the fight against diseases like AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria could be in trouble. Two decades ago, it was decided that a new approach was needed to tackle these threats to human life. A global fund was set up to solicit donations from rich countries and wealthy organizations and to spend that money on combating the disease in poorer countries. And it worked. Since its creation in 2002, the Global Fund claims to have saved 32 million lives. That's great. But this success has required constant effort from those involved, and the diseases themselves are a moving target. The fund needed to raise at least $14 billion by the end of this year, and in early October, they met their target. Natasha Loader is The Economist healthcare editor, and she joins me in the studio now to talk about this. Hello, Natasha. Hi, Ken. Natasha, let's first look at what the Global Fund is and their priorities. So the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB and Malaria was started in 2002. And the idea was that the world was facing these um, three gigantic plagues um, that uh, were threatening to overwhelm a lot of countries. And the idea was to sort of create a very efficient way of targeting funding towards the diseases wherever they were in the world um, and to do so you know in a sort of really efficient uh, sort of technocratic way you know even when countries perhaps choose to spend money on AIDS they may not spend it on priority groups for example you know if you have a drug taking population or a gay population for example that are spreading lots of HIV it might not be politically convenient or acceptable to focus uh, resources on those groups and so the idea of the fund was really sort of target the money at the best use wherever that might be basically and also to sort of bring a sort of size and international expertise um, for example one of the great things that the fund has done has been to buy lots and lots and lots of bed nets. And, you know, when you sort of aggregate demand like that, uh, you can get them a lot cheaper and therefore buy more of them. So who is paying all this money to support people in the poorer countries? The money is um, essentially given by rich donors. Some of the big three international donors would be America, would be Britain, and then there'd be some of the European countries, um, France, Norway, 
uh, places like that. There are also the Gates Foundation, of course, and also private uh, organizations have invested into the Global Fund. I mean, just to correct a sort of slight misinterpretation, it, the money doesn't always just go to poor countries. Sometimes it goes to middle income countries. Um, also, it's not so much just a donation. Essentially, it's co-financing. And so although the Global Fund has raised 14 billion, which it wants to spend on these projects over the next three years, alongside that, they've had commitments of 46 billion from the sort of recipient countries. And so in order to qualify for Global Fund money, domestic countries themselves have to sort of make commitments. And those commitments will vary in size depending on how wealthy they are. Now, for example, India made a huge commitment this time round, and they're really committed to doing something about TB, which is an enormous problem in that country. So what are the factors that we need to consider when we spend this money to make it so effective? I think what the Global Fund has always been good at is using evidence and data to make kind of really hard-nosed decisions about where to spend the money. And you know, as journalists and politicians, they're really good at sort of developing a roadmap as well for what sort of innovations are needed. It's very easy to sort of get excited with the sort of latest innovation in this area or that area. But, you know, the Global Fund has been very good at sort of knowing what it needs now and in the future. I'll give you a good example. One of the problems at the moment uh, for the fight against malaria is that there's uh, resistance developing to the insecticides that are used in the bed nets. Okay, so these bed nets that are created are treated with insecticides, and it makes them very effective. And what's really needed is some way around that problem. Well, um, there is a way around the problem, and it is to use a second insecticide. And that has been already put into place. Um, there's now a new uh, bed net called the Interceptor G2, which is coated with two insecticides, and they will be deployed. And so you kind of have to be ready for that eventuality. And one of the reasons why the Global Fund needed a boost in financing this time, they asked for 15% more than they uh, did in the previous round, is they're going to have to step up the effort in many ways in different diseases. And if you look at malaria, we're seeing uh, resistance in East, Southeast Asia to um, some of the most widely used anti-malarial drugs. And so that's a huge problem. And if that resistance to these anti-malarial drugs spreads to Africa or even to India, it could have a sort of huge um, global health impact. What I think is so extraordinary about this is it's surely not the money that mattered so much, but how it was spent and organized. It seems like there's an interesting story here because if you just collected money, that wouldn't give you the innovation that you needed. No, I mean, it is. It's essentially, it's a package of money and expertise that makes it so worthwhile. It's sort of like a, a consultancy with a fund attached. And you could have thrown a lot more money at these problems and not gotten nearly as far. I mean, look, it's hard to say what the world would look like without the Global Fund. But it says um, that it's saved about 32 million lives since it's opened in 2002. And the number of deaths from these three diseases has halved in the last 10 years. And they hope to save another 16 million lives by 2023. What's great about this is it's one of these rare cases where globalism and global cooperation is really working at a time when we need examples of that. That's what I think when I look at the Global Fund is I do think it's a sort of a rare but not unique example of where the global community has come together to solve 
big problems and create what are global public health goods. And, you know, if you think about what the world would be like if every country focused on these problems on their own, it would be very different because, you know, if you want to eliminate malaria in a country, you face this problem of the sort of last mile problem is at some point, the incidence of malaria becomes so low that it's just not a public health priority. And if you want to drive on to elimination, there has to be a sort of broader kind of international public health goal there. And that's what we've seen with smallpox. And that's what we're seeing with polio as well. Now, amid the successes, one of the questions it poses is whether middle-income countries should be picking up their own domestic spending on these issues rather than looking for a handout from others. Well, I mean, that's exactly what has happened. And middle-income countries are very much picking up their spending and they do graduate from aid, from other funds. The Global Fund tends to continue to fund projects in middle-income countries if the, the countries themselves step up. And that's a sort of... Uh, requirement of receiving finance from the Global Fund is that, you know, middle-income countries do make commitments of their own. What the fund's always been very concerned with is this question of additionality. And so it's a bit of a a nerdy economics debate. It's about the fungibility of aid. And what that means is, is that, you know, if you give money to a country, say, for their health budget, are they just essentially going to take money from their own health budget and then spend it on something else? And you haven't kind of added to the the money that's being spent on health. But very simply, as far as the Global Fund is concerned, they've always demanded that countries step up. Um, And so uh, it's not a handout, really. And it works quite differently from how I would guess that a lot of listeners might imagine. It isn't just a sort of dollop of money given with no strings are tied. And, And indeed, it can also come in the form of aggregating demand or fixing supply chains in terms of, you know, 35 million bed nets. The Global Fund can buy them a lot cheaper than, say, an individual country can. So, it's, it's quite a sophisticated financing mechanism. It's not just a sort of, you know, your traditional, let's just, you know, send money and hope that it goes to the right place. Natasha, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. You're welcome, Ken. You can read more about the Global Fund's ambitions in this week's edition of The Economist. And to subscribe, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next up, many of us see fiddling on our phones as time-wasting. But what if you could get something out of those idle minutes waiting for a bus or in the queue at the supermarket when you're not using the Economist app? Ten years ago, a Guatemalan computer scientist at Carnegie Mellon University in America and a serial entrepreneur named Luis Vanon saw his opportunity. Today, more than 300 million people use his language learning app called Duolingo. He's now set his sights on a new challenge, helping the 750 million illiterate adults around the world learn to read. He made his name inventing CAPTCHAs, those squiggly letters that you type into a web browser to confirm that you're a human and not a robot to do things online. He joined me in the studio to tell me about his plans, and I started by asking him about his work on CAPTCHAs and his upgrade to them called ReCAPTCHAs. So the original CAPTCHA was in the year 2000. Uh, about five years later, um, I realized that every major website used CAPTCHAs. And I did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation about how many times a day somebody would type one of these. And it was about 200 million times a day. And when I realized that, I was quite proud of myself. I thought, look at the impact that my 
my work has had. But then I started feeling bad because, well, most people find them very annoying. And you waste about 10 seconds of your time doing them. So if you multiply 10 seconds by 200 million, humanity as a whole was wasting like 500,000 hours every day typing these annoying captures, partly because of me. So I, I wondered whether there was something that we could get out of this process. Um, the thing is, during those 10 seconds while you're typing a capture, your brain is doing something amazing. It's doing something that computers cannot yet do. So could we get people to do useful stuff? And the answer was yes. And this is when it occurred to me that we could get people to help us digitize books. You took basically a digital photograph of every page of the book. So these were pictures with words in them. And then the computer needed to decipher all of the words in these pictures. But for older books, the computer could not recognize many of the words. So what I started doing, what the recapture project is, is taking all of the words that computers could not recognize in this book digitization process and sending them to people over the Internet to type as a CAPTCHA. So whenever they're getting a, you know, tickets on Ticketmaster, the words that they were typing were actually words that were coming directly from books that were being scanned that the computer could not recognize. So as a byproduct of finding out if the person's a human or a robot, there is some sort of economic productivity coming out that benefits the person who's presented this. That's pretty extraordinary. It's a nice little twofer, rare that you get it in the world. Mm -hmm. But you've defined your career by identifying these sort of twofers and enabling them at a large scale. Tell me more. Twofer is a good word. I mean, it's basically you get two things for, for the price of one. Similarly, there was a game that I worked on, which was, you know, the idea was people were just playing a game. And the thing they were getting out of it was enjoyment. But as they were playing the game, they were also helping to label images for Google Image Search. Then you created Duolingo. Is there a twofer there? There was at the beginning. There is not anymore. Language education was something that always struck me as important. I grew up in Guatemala. Learning English was a huge thing. So I wanted to do something that would give equal access to English education in particular to everybody. Now, the question was, how are we going to offer a free language education? And I had a similar kind of twofer idea, which was, as people were learning English in particular, we were going to get them to help us translate text that was written in English into their native language. The idea was, it was going to be a language learning website. And as people learned, some of the exercises were basically, hey, uh, help us translate this thing to your native language just to practice your English. So we actually uh, signed a contract with CNN where they would write all their news in English and then they would give it to us. And we had this website, Duolingo, that had a bunch of people learning English. And then uh, in order for them to practice their English, we would say, hey, you just learned about food here is a CNN article that is related to food. Uh, help us translate it into Spanish. You're a native Spanish speaker. And so they would do that. And, you know, a number of people would help translate the same thing to practice English. And then we would send the translated version to CNN and CNN would pay us for having done that. So that worked pretty well. But the more we did that, the more we realized we were, um, we were spending most of our effort into making the translations accurate. And what we had wanted to start with was a way to teach languages. So now that you're looking at how to get people to be motivated to learn, mm -hmm. what have you learned? There's a number of things. I mean, for one, quickly we turned it into a mobile app. That's when it really took off. Um, as a mobile app, we have a lot of design considerations to, to make people use it more. I mean, one of the biggest ones is each lesson cannot take much longer than three minutes. Three minutes is pretty nice because it's the amount of time that people think they can spare when they are waiting in line or something. 
And then we've then we've just done a ton of things to make it feel a lot like a game. Um, progress bars. We have a lot of progress bars on Duolingo. There's this an amazing kind of psychological trick that if there's a progress bar that is about 75% full, you will do whatever you need to fill it up. I mean, filling up progress bars is extremely rewarding. The other very powerful thing that we have is this notion of a streak. We basically count uh, how many days in a row you've used Duolingo, and we just show you that number. People who have a streak of longer than 30, so you've been using Duolingo for 30 days in a row, your streak becomes a very important part of your life. And you really have trouble if you ever lose your streak. Um, We get emails from people who sometimes lose long streaks, you know, over 100 days, and they say, I am, they're apologizing. I'm so sorry. Uh, please, can you do something? I, you know, I was on a trip uh, or my, my phone died. Please, can you do something? I'm willing to pay you to uh, repair my streak. Okay. So I can see all the ways in which you've, if you will, gamified mm-hmm. uh, the idea of learning a language to boost people's motivation. Now you're thinking of going into literacy. The idea is, is really just like with Duolingo. With Duolingo, I think we've made a pretty big dent in the number of people learning a language in the world. I mean, we have over 300 million people uh, as, as Duolingo users. And by the way, one thing with Duolingo that is really amazing for me is just the spectrum of people that use it. On one side of the spectrum, we have, for example, Syrian refugees all over Europe are using Duolingo to learn the local languages. Um, we have children in developing countries in public schools in developing countries are using Duolingo to learn English. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, we have Tom Hanks, Kim Kardashian, Bill Gates use Duolingo. So the, the fact that basically everybody uses, uses the same system makes me feel really proud because it's basically more money cannot get you a better system. Now to the literacy. Uh-huh. Is it going to be a different app or is it going to be within the Duolingo It's going to be a different app. Uh, the idea really is to make a real dent in world literacy. There's about a billion adults in the world that are illiterate. Um, But even in developed countries, I mean, even in the UK, for example, uh, apparently one in five children who graduate from primary school don't have the required reading level. Uh, In the US, 15% of the people who graduate from high school uh, have a reading level that's called below basic. And that reading level below basic basically means you can recognize the letters and maybe like sort of recognize the words. And that's about it. Uh, So... I think we can do a lot better in the 21st century, and yeah, that's that's what we want to do. Now, how many of these people have smartphones? A good fraction of them. Um, turns out, so you know, when you say somebody's illiterate, it is rarely the case that they cannot even look at the letters or anything. They usually know what the numbers are like, and usually they use their phones mainly to call. Fortunately for us, well, I don't know, if, I, I'll say fortunately for us, carriers, um, uh, telecom companies have um, done a really, really good job convincing everybody that they need a cheap Android smartphone. Um, So there's a significant fraction of these people that have smartphones. And also, many of the people that we want to reach are children. Um, Their parents may have a, a smartphone. And the idea is to try to just make sure that everybody learns how to read. So what is the timing? And where will you be launching? And what's the look and feel of this app? Uh, it'll look and feel a lot like Duolingo, as in it'll it'll be like a feel like a game. We are already testing it in a small market. Uh, what we started doing with this is, as opposed to launching it worldwide, uh, we pick one country and we, without much fanfare, we just have some people use it there. Um, that started in mid-September, and so we're on it. Um, my sense is that it will be testing in that country for. Six to 12 months. Um, And then afterwards, we're probably going to launch everywhere, uh, depending on how it goes. Great. Luis, thank you so much for being on the show. 
Thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And finally, net zero emission targets are all the rage in the fight against climate change. At the UN Climate Summit in September, more than 60 countries set their own net zero goals. But there are concerns that the goals are too simplistic. How do you divvy up the blame for emissions? Guy Scriven is the Economist climate risk correspondent, and he joins me now in the studio. Hello, Guy. Hi, Ken. Guy, what are some of the problems with net zero targets? So the main problem with net zero targets is what they're actually targeting. So you can account for emissions in uh, many different ways. Emissions happen all over the world. Uh, But two of the kind of most popular methods is to do it by either the amount of emissions that get produced within a given country or the amount of emissions that arise from consumption that happens within a given country. So if you think of a pair of jeans bought in the UK made in Bangladesh. They will emit a lot in the kind of factory process in Bangladesh and a lot in the uh, ferry ride from Bangladesh to the UK. And there are also um, some emissions will occur when they arrive in the UK, transporting uh, the genes from the port to the shop. But only the last bit of that supply chain of emissions will be booked in the UK under production-based emissions, whereas under consumption-based emissions, all the emissions associated with that pair of genes would then belong to the UK. So these are just very different ways of trying to measure and allocate emissions to different countries. Now, how about on a ship's journey? How would you divvy up where the emission is? It's not all in Bangladesh. If it's coming from Bangladesh, it's not all in Britain. By the time it gets to Britain, would you sort of apportion it relative to the length of the journey and where it goes? Yes. So um, travel uh, between countries' borders is a kind of really interesting point. Uh, And there's no set way to uh, allocate that. Different uh, emissions accounting methods take in different ways. So one way is to um, um, look at which company operates that ship or that airplane and where that company is based. So in that case, all BA's flights would be booked to Britain. Um, another way is to look at um, what, who the residents are or who are using those uh, methods of transport. In that case, kind of all British holidaymakers, their flights would then be booked back to Britain. And there are kind of further iterations on this where you can go further up the chain and um, allocate um, the emissions from a plane to, you know, the shareholders that own. But essentially, it's not something that's that's set or decided. There are different ways to get at it. So this has been a known problem for a while. What's the solution? There are various ways you can try to lower your carbon footprint. At the moment, the European uh, Union is considering implementing uh, carbon tariffs, which essentially kind of level the playing field for areas that already have a price on carbon so that 
carbon kind of leakage doesn't occur and dirty industries don't just shift abroad and avoid a carbon tax that way. How would that work? It can work in various ways, but one popular method is that the amount uh, levied at the border would be essentially the difference between um, a product produced with the carbon tax and a product produced without the carbon tax. So if you import some steel from China and that isn't under a carbon tax, then the adjustment will happen at the border for that. So it sounds like the problem is therefore solved, is it? Uh, so, no, these measures, you know, I mean, they're largely not in place. They're kind of emerging. I mean, there are many other things you can do to lower your carbon footprint. But um, the main thing is that many of these kind of net zero targets, which are kind of hugely popular now, and you'll see more and more kind of cities and countries uh, using them and announcing them, almost all of them focus on the kind of wrong type of emissions. They focus on the production rather than the consumption. Now, we've got panels of experts that come up with things like standards for the national accounts, what constitutes GDP so we can compare it across economies. Should we have a sort of treaty organization for accounting for carbon before we even try to get a treaty to reduce carbon? I imagine that would help. I think there are some efforts to improve kind of carbon accounting. I mean, these happen all over the world. So I think rich countries are trying to do a lot to improve how they kind of account for carbon domestically and poorer countries where we know a lot less about carbon emissions and the data is, is, is much less accurate are also trying to kind of up their game in that respect. But all of this is an intermediate step for reducing carbon emissions. What do you think the solution is in terms of having this measurement problem but really wanting the ground truth of being able to reduce emissions? Uh, what is really needed is for kind of rich countries to uh, take full responsibility for all of their emissions and not just the emissions that occur within their borders. Guy, thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're still with us, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.